Today on Let the Bible Speak. Many of us need a revival, but how do we recognize when one is taking place? And good morning to you. It's good to be with you for our half hour of Bible study time, and I'm delighted you've joined me to consider the Word of God. You won't have any trouble finding a preacher or an elder or simply many Christians who will say, we need a revival. Such has been a persistent and common theme of the pulpit down through the stream of time. Some suggest the church throughout America needs revival. They might point to their own congregation and say that church is dead and in desperate need of reviving. Perhaps you might say that of your own life or of the life of some nominal church member who seems unmotivated and unconcerned about the things of Christ and the work of the kingdom. I think it's safe to say that we do need a revival in many places, in many things, and in many lives today. A revival is a wonderful thing in the eyes of God, and we should rejoice when we see one occur in our own life or in the lives of other people. It's scriptural to pray that revival might take place. In the verse I wish to read is our scripture text today. In Psalm 85 and verse 6, the psalmist writes, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Now, revival is not only a Bible theme, but also is often needed and necessary. But just what is a revival? Would we know a true revival if one took place? You know, I'm not concerned about the impression something leaves us with or Merely the emotions an event may generate. We should be concerned with what God calls a revival and what a revival, according to the Word of God, looks like. And we should hope for and yearn for that kind of revival. So today I'd like for us to consider the subject, Recognizing Revival. And I'll return with our study after a song.
The word revive simply means to live or to bring back to life or a state of health. It can mean to awaken. Well, that, of course, would imply that one needs a revival because they are either asleep, sick, or even dead. When a person drifts away from God and their relationship to Him grows distant and cold and strained or even severed, he or she needs to be revived. And I think any of us who have been Christians for very long have experienced times in our life when, for one reason or another, and to one degree or another, our faith needed reviving. We needed to be brought back. Jesus told the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2 that they had left their first love and needed to repent and do the first works. In other words, they needed a revival of their love and their zeal for Christ like they had in the beginning. And Jesus warned that if such a revival did not take place, they would face His judgment and their candlestick would be removed. Well, such a cycle is often repeated with God's people throughout time. We read of several revivals in the Word of God, particularly in the Old Testament, when faith was at a low ebb and the people had neglected the law of God and even turned to the worship of other gods. God would send some prophet to stir them up and to call them back, and oft times His preaching would spark a great revival and bring about, at least for a time, repentance and reformation. Well, few people who profess to be Christians today would say they don't think there's a need for revival. I think most of us would agree that that is the case. We certainly need an awakening to eternal and spiritual matters all across the land today. We need a revival of respect for the Word of God and a revival of obedience to God, a revival of reverence for God, in the religious community even. Many a congregation needs revival of commitment and zeal for the things of Christ and His kingdom. That's obvious by the empty pews and the struggling churches we see in nearly every community. We need to strengthen the things that are ready to die, as Jesus admonished the church at Sardis to do in Revelation chapter 3, as the fires of persecution and difficulty were closing in around them. And we hear many calls for revival, and from time to time we see claims that revivals are taking place in our own day. Well, I rejoice when anybody begins to pay attention to matters of the soul and they turn their attention toward God and particularly to the Word of God. That's a wonderful thing. But it begs the question, what does an actual revival consist of? What does revival result in? What causes a true revival to take place? If we desire revival, if we pray for revival, if we hope for revival, I believe it's important that we know how to recognize a revival when it occurs. And friend, a revival is not an inexplicable and overwhelming experience. It is not something that mysteriously sweeps over people. A revival is much more objectively described by the Word of God than that, and we should know what leads to one taking place and what it looks like when it does. You know, there have been many times through the ages when there was a need for people to be awakened or revived. As I've said, we can read of several revivals, particularly in the Old Testament. And each time revival took place, you'll notice that it was needed because of one or more things. Unrepented of sin, of course, always calls for a revival of fidelity to God. And there were times when the nation of Israel was lured into idolatry and all of its accompanying sins and fleshly indulgences, and it became necessary for God to discipline them, and He would send His prophets to them to warn them of what was to come and to repent and return to Him. There were times when the people of God who were supposed to be separated and consecrated to the Lord, when they were to be a holy people, they became worldly and like the pagan nations around them. 
And this too called for a revival of holiness and separation from the unbelieving world. God would tell them, come out from among, among them and be separate, and you'll be my people and I will be your God. Oftentimes it was ignorance of the law of God that led people to such a condition that a revival was called for. They lost sight of what Moses had commanded them. They lost sight of the stirring messages of their prophets. And then the people sometimes fell into a state of indifference. And they began to neglect the worship and the service of God. They forsook His holy days and those observances that were commanded by God. And it was the priority of the prophets of God to awaken the people to their duty and to bring about a revival of steadfast service. Now these are the kinds of revivals that were needed all throughout the Old Testament and that sometimes took place. And they're the kinds of revivals in effect that we need today as well. Let's look at a few examples of such revivals and see if we can learn what a revival actually consists of, how to recognize a revival. First of all, I want us to look at a period of revival that took place in ancient Judah during her dying days. Now, the glory days of the Davidic and Solomonic Empire is, are long past. The nation has long since been divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. And there was a series of wicked kings that ruled over Israel that led to the utter rejection and destruction of the northern tribes. And so only Judah remained in the south to carry out God's purposes. But even Judah went through a troubling and destructive cycle of, of wicked kings as well. Now Hezekiah was a good king and he followed the Lord and he accomplished a great deal of good for Judah. But unfortunately, all of that was undone by his wicked son Manasseh, who took the throne when Hezekiah died. Manasseh worshipped numerous idols, and he led Judah down the path of ultimate destruction. God sent several anonymous prophets during that time to warn them of God's wrath, but Manasseh continued to do evil in the sight of God. It wasn't until late in his reign that Manasseh was carried away captive by the Assyrians but he had a change of heart and he repented of his sins and he tried to clean up the mess he had made, but the damage was done. Shortly thereafter his son Ammon became king and the Bible says that Ammon forsook the God of his fathers. He went right back and started worshiping the gods of the nations around him. Now fortunately he only reigned for two years. And then Josiah uh, steps onto the stage. Josiah becomes king. He's the grandson of Manasseh. But Josiah was a good man. He was very young when he became king, as was sometimes the case back in those days. But Josiah dedicated his heart to God, and he wanted to be a godly king, and he wanted to set Judah's course aright. And he set out to reform the nation, and a period of great revival took place under his watch. As brief as it may have been, he effected a revival. Now we read about that beginning in 2 Kings chapter 22. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, he really began to seek after God and he launched this revival that quickly gained momentum and resulted in Judah being spared judgment for a little while. Now what led to that revival? And what did it look like when it happened? Well, let's see. For one thing, Josiah realized that the temple of God was in a state of disrepair. It was in shambles and he wanted it restored. And so he appointed a committee who gathered up the money and they oversaw and made sure the much needed work commenced. So there's already an awakening to the need for revival. But something remarkable happened that led to a great change uh, in the nation. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8-13, through 13, 
We read that some workers were repairing the temple one day when in one of the rooms, Hilkiah found a strange scroll. Turns out it was a scroll containing the law of Moses. Uh, perhaps it was the book of the law that Moses had commanded be kept by the Ark of the Covenant so long before. Uh, some scholars contend that it was uh, a, merely the book of Deuteronomy. Some say that it contained all of the Pentateuch. But regardless, there was enough there. It contained the law to the extent that uh, they could easily see that they were not worshiping and living like they were supposed to. Now, when Hilkiah found the scroll, he handed it over to a scribe named Shaphan, and he read it, enough of it to know that it was very important and valuable. And so he takes it into King Josiah, and he reads it to him. Now, what Josiah heard when the law was read bothered him. In fact, he was overcome by what he heard. He realized how far the people had drifted away from the Word of God. And he tore his clothes, the Bible says, as a sign of his great sorrow. And he ordered his people to go through the scroll and to discern and decipher the message within it. And when they did, they found some very disturbing things. They found that they were guilty of breaking the commandments of God. They found that they were neglecting the rightful observance of the law of God, and they found that God promised judgment for so doing. And so in verse 13, Josiah orders them, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Well, they learned that the fires of God's judgment were smoldering against them. But Josiah would be spared that judgment because of what God said to him in verses 19 and 20. Listen, he says, Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I shall bring on this place. Now, this was more than just King Josiah being emotionally moved by the reading of the scroll. This was certainly much deeper than a fleeting and momentary awakening of Josiah's conscience. There wasn't some force or some influence that swept over Josiah suddenly and uh, caused him to think things and do certain things. But rather, when the law of God was brought to him and he listened to it with a clear and a pure seeking heart, something tremendous happened. It launched a reform. It launched a revival. That was preceded by sorrow for what the people had done and the condition of the people and a determination to turn back to God and to keep His law. And so starting in chapter 23, we read of all of the reforms that Josiah enacted. He called a national assembly and he renewed the covenant that they had so grossly sinned against. He ordered the temple to be cleansed of any trace of paganism and false worship. He removed the pagan priests who had found their way into the temple during the dark days of Manasseh and had no business being there. He cleaned up the immorality that was being practiced around the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was restored to its rightful place within the temple. Uh, they began to observe the Passover again, which they had long since neglected. 
You see, this revival centered on the discovery and the reading of God's Word, and they compared the Word of God to the state that they were in. And that created sorrow for their sin and a resolve to change and a resolve to obey the Word of God. And it resulted in a change in the behavior and the worship of Josiah and the people, at least for a time. Now, unfortunately, Josiah's revival didn't last very long, and that's oftentimes the case with revivals. God's judgment was later meted out, but because Josiah's heart was pricked by the reading of the Word of God and he repented and changed his ways, God spared him and kept him from seeing that judgment. Well, the people were eventually carried away to Babylon and the temple and the city of Jerusalem were overrun and destroyed. But after their long exile, God allowed His people to return. And it's then we read of another revival taking place. And this time it involved Nehemiah and the scribe Ezra. Now Nehemiah prayed for the restoration of his people and God answered his prayers. And one thing that Nehemiah did when he approached God, if you'll read his prayers in the opening chapters of the book of Nehemiah, was he confessed his sins. He included himself when he confessed to the Lord that the people had broken his commandments, had done evil, they were in the place that they were in because of their sin. He fully acknowledged that, but he went beyond acknowledgement. He wanted to repent. He wanted to bring the people back to God spiritually, not just to rebuild them physically. And he wanted there to be a restoration of Jerusalem. Well, God heard his prayers and Nehemiah led the charge to rebuild the broken down and burned walls of Jerusalem. If you remember the story, he withstood the opposition from without and within and he organized and he led this great work. And when the work of rebuilding the walls was complete, I want us to see what happened according to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now this was a true revival that swept over the land. And I want you to see what caused it and I want you to see exactly what it led to. Now the Bible says that they gathered all of the people uh, in front of the water gate on the east side of the city and they constructed a platform, a pulpit of wood, and they requested the, prophet, or they requested the priest and the scribe, Ezra, to come and stand up and read the law of God to them. Now that's interesting because we haven't heard anything out of Ezra for many years. Fact is, they had rejected Ezra and his narrow preaching, his conservatism his calling them to obey the law of God. They had rejected him and his preaching many years before, but now they want to hear from him. They wanted to hear the ancient law of the Lord read to them. Now, friend, I submit to you that any time a revival takes place today, people are going to want to hear the ancient word of God just like they did. There will be no revival that takes place any, anywhere, in any place, in any heart, that does not involve and is not centered around the Bible, the Word of God. You see, revival implies a bringing back and a restoration. Now listen to what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8 beginning in verse 2. It says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And verse 8 says, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them understand the reading. Now friends, what took place that day caused them to confess and forsake their sins and renew their resolve to keep their covenant with God. And what brought it about? 
It was the reading and the explanation of the Word of God. And you see, my friend, revival is not merely an event or a meeting, although revival can certainly be sparked by something said or done and preached in a meeting. Meetings can be wonderful, but they don't mean a revival has taken place. A revival is not a rush of emotion, though repentance and renewal of our relationship with God, if such takes place, is certainly something to be overjoyed about. Revival runs much deeper than excitement, though the result of true revival will include a new zeal for the things of God. And friend, let me emphasize revival is not something we wait around for the Holy Spirit to bring. Now, yes, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life, and therefore revival comes from the Spirit of God. I certainly wouldn't argue with that, but the Spirit of God brings that revival through the Word of God, which He inspired and gave us. The Word of God is His instrument of revival. The preaching of that Word is what causes revival, and obedience to that Word is the result of that revival. You see, when we look at revivals in the Bible, and there are many others we could cite if we had the time today, they have several things in common. Number one, a revival begins and ends with the preaching of the Word of God. The Word is what convicts a person, not an abstract and indescribable move of the Holy Spirit, whatever that may seem to be. The Word the Spirit has given is His tool for doing that convicting. And that conviction brought by the Word leads to a commitment to obey that Word. Second of all, a true revival always involves a frank and honest confession of our sins. Why we need a revival? Because of our sins. And we acknowledge that before God, but not just acknowledgement. A true revival always results in repentance or a turning from sin, which results in a change in our conduct. And number four, revival always results in a return to the Word of God and a restoration of the divine order. And my friend, if that doesn't take place, a revival is not taking place. But that's the kind of revival we need today. That kind of revival needs to sweep across our hearts and across our churches and across the land today. The problem we sometimes encounter is that some get caught up in an emotionally soaked experiential form of religion. And they conclude that revival has taken place. But friend, I want to remind you and caution you. We don't test the Word of God by experiences. We test experiences by the Word of God. Some people even equate a biblically based religion with being cold and dead. They yearn for something new and outside of the Word of God. But friend, this is the source of revival. You want to have a revival, get in the Word of God. Get into and devote yourself to a true study and knowledge of the Word of God in order that you might know God and serve God. Come to the Word of God with a sincere, seeking, repenting, submitting spirit, and this book will transform your life. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that this book is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Get back into the Word of God and it will spark a revival of your faith and it will cause you to return to the true worship of God and to live a life of steadfast, growing faith and obedience to the will of God. Worthy of praise is Christ our Redeemer, worthy of glory.
Subscribe to our YouTube channel to see all of our past broadcasts, plus extra videos including Let the Bible Speak classics all the way back to the 1960s. And get new updates, go to YouTube and search for Let the Bible Speak TV and click on subscribe. I'm glad you've joined me for our study today. And if you would like to have a free printed transcript of it, we'd be glad to send it to you. And as is always the case, it's free of charge. We never ask for any money whatsoever from our viewers. We send these materials out free. They are our gift as members of the Church of Christ to those of you who are interested in reading more and learning more about the Word of God. So be sure to call or write to us today and ask for the free sermon, and we'll be glad to send it to you right away. Just ask for the lesson, Recognizing Revival, and that transcript will be on its way. We're online, ltbstv.org, and of course on social media, so find us on Facebook and uh, on YouTube. Just search for Let the Bible Speak TV, and you can also find our podcast under that name, Let the Bible Speak TV, and subscribe and listen to us on the go. Help us spread the word about the program, won't you? And I hope that you'll make your plans to join me back here, if God is willing, for another Bible study next time. Until then, have a great week ahead, and may God richly bless you. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.